in this service that is random. Uh, these songs that we have sung together, we have sung the message today to each other. Scripture passage that was chosen, all of these pieces being brought together to steer our thoughts and our souls toward the truth of God's Word. I'm so grateful for those that labor this way and just to think as we consider Philippians chapter 2 today, if you'll make your way there in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, tremendous truths have been shared in song and reflective of this text of Scripture that's before us today. Let's consider it. If you would follow as I read Philippians 1 verse 27, Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 as we make our way today into chapter 2. Paul has said that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, turning to the Philippians directly, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Notice, worthy of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lord, as we look to this passage today, I pray that its truth would seep into our souls and saturate the soil that is hard, that it would tenderize hard hearts, tenderize mine. We come in our sin and in our weakness. We come in the midst of relational challenges in our workaday world, among our extended families, in our individual homes, 
in the church family. We face disunity and strife and trial as people relating to people. We thank you for the example of our Savior, and I pray that this passage would deeply affect us as believers and for those who know not Christ, that they would take to heart this truth that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. May this time in the Word prepare them for that day. And may you be glorified as we labor together. Give us understanding through your Spirit. Through Christ we pray. Amen. People, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we all get along? Famous words spoken May 1st, 1992 by Rodney King. An African-American whose brutal beating by the Los Angeles police officers sparked days of rioting in south-central Los Angeles. Fifty-five people died in that uprising. And at an impromptu news conference, King himself sought to calm the storm. Can we get along? Can we just get along? No, not really, it would seem. Wherever we find people, there we find controversy and strife. Racial turmoil, gender wars, political battles, family strife, cliques, factions, gangs, armies at war. Can't we just get along? No, selfish ambition and pride infect our hearts and war occupies our souls. Getting along is no simple choice as King's earnest but ultimately pathetic appeal failed to appreciate. As if we could just choose in a moment of time to get along. Relational harmony requires nothing short of divine intervention. The good news is that into this torn world, tumultuous world, Jesus Christ comes on a rescue mission to secure for His people first reconciliation with God and then peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is Christ's ongoing reclamation project. He's rescuing from this war that is within us, that comes so naturally to us that we see everywhere. Do we not see it in the media as we see people warring over things that make no sense to us and we say, can't we just get along? Why do you keep destroying yourselves? Stop this! Only Christ can bring this about, ultimately. He's on a rescue mission to reconcile us to Himself and then to one another. The church is Christ's ongoing reclamation project. We are, in a sense, a laboratory of relational unity and harmony in the midst of a world at war. We're not that ideally, we're not all that we ought to be, but we are in that work, Christ doing it among us. As we looked at the last part there of chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 28, 29, and 30, 
we see that many times the war is against us. That is, it comes from outside. It is the unbeliever that is bringing pressure upon believers and attacking from without. In the midst of that context, Paul says to the Philippian believers, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27. Live a life worthy of the gospel. In verse 29, know that suffering will come. We live in a world at war and there will be people who seek to hit you because you are a follower of Christ. But this call to live in sync with the good news of Jesus crucified and risen also has a profound influence on how we relate to one another as members of Christ's church. The Philippian church was struggling. It's quite clear as we read the entire book, they were struggling with relational tension and strife, even though they were, from all appearances, a fairly doctrinally sound church. They were a healthy church in that they were involved in the spread of the gospel. They were a faithful church. They were suffering for Christ, in fact. This is a good church. But in this good church, there are people that are not getting along. And there's an appeal here within this context to unity. As Paul moves into chapter 2, he holds nothing back as he earnestly calls the Philippian believers to pursue unity in their relationship with one another. And he bases this call to unity as church members on a breathtaking appeal to the implications of the gospel. And in light of this appeal, Eden Baptist Church, we too must live out the implications of the gospel in the pursuit of loving unity as members of Christ's body. This is an exhortation. This is not brand new news to us. But it's an exhortation to remember who we are, and it is a study in how the gospel is to be applied to a specific need within a church body. We encounter the call to unity first in verses 1 and 2. Members of Christ's church have a moral obligation to pursue unity together. Chapter 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And he goes on. As we look at verse 1, we say, of course there is. Each of these four phrases reveals a crucial result of Christ's death and resurrection. By trusting the gospel, believers are vitally united with Christ. And that union secures encouragement, love, partnership generated by the Holy Spirit, deep affections and sympathy or compassion. We won't take time to dig into the meaning of each of these concepts, but he piles them up for the Philippians to consider. Indeed, I don't think Paul is really inviting them to ransack each phrase for its full theological meaning, but Paul is putting them out there to say, with this impassioned speech, to stir up affections of wonder at the benefits of Christ's saving grace. These are realities in our life. Because of what Christ has done. If any of these resonates with you, and I'm confident that they do, Paul writes, then complete my joy. Oh, what joy we have. What joy I had coming to you. And it was tough. 
I ended up in prison. I, I ended up in a lot of trouble there in Philippi. But what joy when I proclaimed the gospel and you responded. What joys there are in our knowledge in Christ. Now complete that joy. Verse 2, the four phrases of verse 1 now mirrored in the four phrases of verse 2. Complete my joy by, and so in a sense here's the imperative, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. By focusing initially on the completion of his joy, Paul is a psychologist par excellence. He, he knows how to, to move people and to sometimes slide off of what could offend or what would be personal so as to address them wisely. And he does that here by saying, complete my joy. He doesn't just come at them and say, listen, there's strife in this church, knock it off. He comes at them and says, make my joy complete. He kind of turns the light on himself for a moment as he then puts very gently these commands. You need to have the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. The same love, this isn't intellectual uniformity. It's not freedom from all disagreement and differing opinion, but the Spirit calls us to adopt a singular mindset that is calibrated to the mind of Christ. I think contextually that's what he's driving at, that we would think like Jesus, that we would adopt that mindset. The same love, to practice a sacrificial love for one another that is born out of the love of Christ for us, being in full accord, that is having a harmonious or united soul and being of one mind. It's not a careless repetition, but an emphatic conclusion. Our minds are to be focused on the Lord, the task at hand, and to think as He thinks. Having called us to unity, verses 3 through 5, then develop the way to unity. The way to unity. Members of Christ's church must adopt a Christ-like mindset in pursuit of unity. And I think that's at the heart of this passage, to take on the mindset of Christ, to view it, to see it, to value it, to practice it. Verses 3 through 5 has provided some practical exhortations that coach us in how to actively pursue unity when the flesh would like to pull us apart. He goes from negative to positive twice here, and then a concluding point in verse 5. But let's consider these points, verse 3, as we consider the adoption of a mindset in pursuit of unity. Here it is, negatively, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition puts my agenda first. Its aims are self-profit, with little concern for others and control. That's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is an accident waiting to happen in a family, in a church. Conflict follows as soon as someone stands in the way of my agenda. When selfish ambition is driving us, we're going against unity. John MacArthur's comments on this passage are insightful. He says, When one person's greatest desire is to serve God in the Spirit and another person desires to be prominent, disunity 
will result. When someone has a heartfelt hunger to see Christ's church united and another wants the whole world to know he's been offended, people will collide. Those who concentrate on how they've been injured will react in the flesh and soon their minds will deceive them to imagine hurts that are purely a product of their fleshly minds. A pastor's heart and observation. We're not to be driven by selfish ambition and as we do, we call upon ourselves all kinds of trouble or to be moved by conceit. Conceit displays an attitude that says, my thoughts are best, my plan is wisest, all who disagree with me are fools, I must get my way, I'm special and only idiots don't see that. And nobody articulates it that way, but that's really what's at the heart of it. That's at the heart of it in you. It's at the heart of it in me. That conceit is there. He says, don't operate that way. Don't take on that mindset of conceit. Such attitudes are incompatible with the gospel and its implications. More on that to come, but Paul moves to a positive alternative to selfish ambition and conceit. That's wrong. Positively, verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility count others more significant than you count and esteem yourself. That's not easy or normal. It may not even seem possible, but God is not joking around here or wasting our time with fantasy talk. He's saying that the pursuit of unity is one as you put the interests of others ahead of your own. It is one as in humility you count yourselves, others, more significant than you count yourselves. Jesus' death on the cross breaks the power of selfish ambition and pride in our lives so that by His grace we can actually look at others in this way. What would happen, I wonder, what would happen in the life of Eden Baptist Church if we all consciously, prayerfully, and faithfully developed the practice of considering everyone around us more significant than ourselves? Naturally, we walk into every room thinking, my interests are supreme. What would happen if God continued to teach us and nurture and develop us to see others first? What might happen in our homes? What might happen as children looked at life this way, in humility counting others more significant than themselves? What would happen if wives and moms and dads and husbands, if single adults among us began to operate within our context and within our relationships with the Spirit, how dramatically and wonderfully would the Spirit in our homes and in our church improve if we went about every day with that attitude? I consider your agenda, your interests, and your concerns more significant than my own. It doesn't come naturally, but it is our calling. He switches back to negative in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Learn not to lock into your own agenda and desires in blind disregard of others and flipping back positively, verse 4, but also to the interests of others. 
We must learn to look out for and notice the interests of others and actively address them. When conflicts erupt in our church, in our homes, we get locked into our own interests and we become blind to the interests of others. There's such tremendous wisdom in this council. Paul teaches us that unity comes not from others lining up with what I want, but with me humbling myself and aligning my thoughts to the concerns of others. That's active pursuit of unity. That is rare and valuable counsel. We've got, if we're honest and really alive in this world, we've got to ask, is it reasonable? Is this reasonable counsel to expect real people to order their lives this way? And for that matter, why is this even good counsel? I can think of a lot of ways in which this might well seem to backfire. Why is the way of humility and deferential treatment of one another even right? Paul adds another positive word of counsel in verse 5 to round out this section as he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. You think this doesn't work, look at Jesus. Have the mindset that Jesus brought to everyday life. The Greek verse is difficult to translate, but I think the idea is think about one another in a way that fits who you are in spiritual union with Jesus Christ. I think that's the idea of in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think about one another in a way that fits who you are in spiritual union with Jesus Christ. The gospel's implications changing the way you relate with one another. Actively so. What you believe, what you treasure, what motivates you as you commune with Christ through trust in the gospel, apply that same mentality in your relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. At verse 6, Paul launches into one of the richest Christological sections of the New Testament. What is stunning is the immediate context. Now the book as a whole, it fits very nicely into it and very obviously into it as this is a very Christ-centered book. Go through and underline uh, in a real Bible, uh, underline or highlight uh, on your screen where it says Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord in this book. It is Christocentric through and through. But Paul is addressing the Philippian struggle to be united with one another as members of the body of Christ. And that's unusual. That gets your attention. He's talking in the narrow context here about brothers and sisters in a church getting along. It's in that context that we find this rich Christological section. It's amazing. So everything that we see in verses 3 through 5 is epitomized in Jesus and his mission of salvation. All I've been saying to you, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. That's Christ. Take that mindset that's yours in union with Him and live it out in relationship with one another. So supporting that call is this theologically rich statement on Christ. And Some of you are 
confused about who Jesus is. Let's admit it, we all are. We'll spend the rest of eternity probably figuring out who Jesus is and understanding this God-man. But some are very confused thinking of Jesus, and you maybe have come today thinking Jesus is a man. He was a good teacher. He was not God, or he maybe became God later or something of the like. Pay careful attention. This is a crucial passage of Scripture. But for every one of us, it is a crucial passage of Scripture. Even for those who have a more orthodox view of who Christ is, we need to consider carefully how who He is affects who we are and how we relate to one another. But let's feed. Let's feed on this rich section. Verse 6, who, Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. The Greek word form speaks of the outward display of an inward reality. It is, as others, another has said, a visible manifestation of God. Jesus could not display deity unless He is deity. He can't display God. He's not in the form of God unless He is God. And He is. He is, as the phrase qualifies there in verse 6, equal with God. It clarifies what the form of God means here. He is on equal with God. There is an equality there. But he does not see that as a thing to be grasped. Again, a challenging phrase, but he did not consider his renown as God a reality he had to hold on to at all costs. So he had every right to be revered as the sovereign creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. He's in the form of God. He is equal with God. But he doesn't cling to that reputation, if we could say it that way. Rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant and being in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, indicates to us, and we've got to be very careful here, that Jesus did not empty himself by losing anything. He was God from eternity past, and he never ceased to be God when he took on flesh, but he emptied himself of his station and renown by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Typically, when we use the word emptying, we think of losing something. But Jesus emptied himself by adding something. To his divine nature, he added a fully human nature with its natural limitations. He emptied himself by leaving his celestial throne for a humble stable and a bed of straw. He emptied himself, arrayed in splendor by donning the rags of a peasant. He emptied himself by relinquishing the eternal praises of the angelic realm and accepting anonymity and then the jeers and the scorn of men. Jesus left off the unlimited and unceasing exhibition of his divine powers for the natural limitations of a body. Not that he could not display his divine powers in that body, but there was a change. There was a humiliation 
and emptying in the sense of adding the limitations of a body. And although his incarnation did not subject him to sin, it did subject him to living among sinners and weeping in sorrow over what he saw in a unique way. So he emptied himself. We might imagine a pavilion on our land and sunshine and warmth. We're stretching it here a bit, aren't we? It's a good day to be inside. We can imagine being outside the summer in our place, and we're visited as a church on a picnic day by an Olympic sprinter. And this Olympic sprinter joins in, eats with us like a common person, but then comes the three-legged race. You know that race? There are two people together, and they tie their, inside, or their legs together. You don't have inside legs, do you? I guess you do if you're two standing there tied together. But they tie their inside legs together and run in the race. Now that Olympic sprinter is giving up the speed that he'd normally have. The capacities to show just how fast I am. But takes on, it's an addition here. It's an emptying on one level. It's an addition on another level in humility. So Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, paralleling clearly the form of God. That is, he is fully God and he is fully man. In the same passage, Paul's not lost his way. He's telling us what we're hearing. He's fully God. He's fully man. Verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Human form, the Greek, and in outward appearance, being found a man. Not the same Greek word as form above, but the same idea. Having humbled himself by taking on flesh, Jesus humbled himself by submitting to death. And a death of the most ignoble sort. In the ancient world, crucifixion was considered to be the most humiliating, degrading, debilitating death one could possibly suffer. To that point, we have now the bookends the form of God, the glory of God, and here, death on a cross. That was not a fate that was suffered by most people. That was a fate suffered by an extreme few who were the worst of this world. That's what Christ suffered. And in verse 9 We read the rest of the story. As humiliation gives way to exaltation, therefore God has highly exalted him. That is, having completed his mission, the reputation Jesus relinquished is restored. The risen, ascended, reigning Christ is restored to the exalted position he enjoyed before his incarnation. God exalted him, verse 9. 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus standing for all that he is and all that he has accomplished as the risen, exalted Savior. To the name of Jesus, to his status as Lord, all creation will do homage and every tongue, human and angelic, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let that sound and let us hear that because that's going to be you. That's going to be me someday. Someday, in eternity, every knee will bow in homage. I wonder, are you preparing for that day? Are we living a life that's worthy of the gospel? Verse 27. The good news is that verse 8, Jesus died to save sinners from His wrath so that we can bow before Him with love and joy and thanksgiving. Are you living that way? Confessing Christ as Lord could be a terrifying experience. It could be a joyful experience. We have heard that it will come. What type of experience are you preparing for it to be? Paul is looking forward to it. He says, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die is gain. There's no fear of bowing before the Lordship of Jesus Christ for Paul. Is there for you? Is there for me? This Christology is so exalted. This portrait of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the exaltation of Christ is breathtaking. Paul takes us to such lofty heights, we fairly lose our bearings on the world that we actually occupy and lose our way in what he's actually doing here. But what is so stunning is that this lofty portrait of Christ is painted in order to prepare the Philippians to get along. It's amazing. It's certainly here to prepare all of us to meet Christ in eternity. But on a practical level, he puts all of this together to say, that's the mindset. That's what you're going to need. When we truly grasp the gospel in light, in, it lights our whole world. We see the gospel like we see the sun in the sky and we are saved. But as sunlight allows us to see everything else as well. So the gospel helps us see every relationship differently. And this in Christ is the answer in this broken world. We come to terms with ourselves. We cannot get along. But then we come to terms with the gospel. Jesus did not display selfish ambition or conceit. He prioritized our interests and He humbled Himself to meet our needs. Risen, ascended, glorified, and exalted, the Father fully approved of Jesus' work. And in like manner, He calls us to the sort of humility that is displayed by Christ. 
So there's some gathering here today. It's, there's trouble behind closed doors in your home. Relationships aren't going very well. There's trial, there's difficulty, there's difficult words, there's relationships that seem broken beyond any repair, there is conflict that is crushing you. This passage does not lay out 18 specific applications and precisely how you should address each one of them. But again, this passage takes us to the core. It bores down to the very depths of our being to what we must know. What we must adopt is a Christ-like mindset. Now, I realize in saying that that there are so many circumstances and it seems impossible and it's one thing for you to consider how you are relating to others, but then there's how they are relating to you. And we can't control that. And we can't make trials and challenges always go away. There's nothing that we can do. In fact, sometimes it seems that what you strive to do to bring reconciliation and peace just brings more trouble. That's just the world of sinners. That's who we are. But one thing we can know, when there's trouble behind closed doors at home, selfish ambition and conceit and looking at your own things first is not going to get you anywhere good. Allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to illumine how you relate in those challenging moments to that challenging person. Let that gospel message illumine how you go about it. Now, you won't be very good at it, and it's going to take all of your life to learn and to grow and to mature in applying it. And you're going to need to confess your sin, but you're on a wrong track if you think fighting for yourself and your way and your reputation is going to get you anywhere. And so it is within the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as in this reclamation project, as Jesus works with us. Let's admit it, because I think the Philippians indicated to us, conflict and tension are common among people who revere the truth. Everybody can believe whatever they want to believe. All we got to do is try to let them believe it. But when we believe in absolute truth, there's going to be tension When we're in the context of a church that's willing to hold one another accountable for our actions, for our words, there's going to be tension. And when we serve in the trenches of ministry together, there's going to be conflict. We need to be wise enough and mature enough as a church to recognize this is normal life in the midst of a congregation that is seeking to serve Christ and be faithful to the truth. We are people, and people don't naturally see things the same way, and when they don't see things the same way, they naturally think of it from a self-oriented position. And so we don't get along. 
But by God's grace and in light of the gospel, God who began a good work in us is bringing it to completion. He is teaching this assembly to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to walk in full accord, to share the same selfless mindset, to walk in unity as we display to a watching world the relational effects of the gospel. So that's normal now for people in Christ. We don't give up. We don't form factions. We continue to work through the struggles and the conflicts that we face, knowing they're part of the real world, but also seeing everything illumined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the hero. Not me. Not us. Christ. And we calibrate everything to his mindset. Adopting the mindset that fueled the incarnation and the crucifixion and that has received the stamp of God's approval through resurrection, ascension, reign, return, and ultimate, final vindication and redemption. We can't get along. We can't get along. Not in our own strength. Not according to our own ingenuity. But here's the thing. As we learn to relate to one another, we bring glory to the Christ who came to redeem and to reconcile and to bring peace between Jews and Gentiles. And clearly, between men and women, young and old rich and poor. Different ethnicities, we love it. Bring it on. Any difference in this world, that anything it can throw at us in difference, when people come to know Christ as Savior, they are bound by that common bond across all kinds of walls and barriers. That's what Jesus is doing. Display it as a church, display it in our homes by God's grace. We cannot get along in our own strength, but we've been redeemed. And that makes all the difference. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need you. And maybe there's even some among us here today that are saying, how on earth did he know? Why is he talking to me? Lord, put us all at peace to know we're all talking to everybody. Sometimes as we get in the middle of our conflicts, we tend to think we're the only ones. It's a world at war. But God, how we also thank you that in this church and in so many of our homes, by your grace, There is a growing and developing skill to work toward reconciliation and peace and unity. And I pray that this church would be marked by unity as we work to launch out a new assembly here in a matter of months. 
as we labor to reach out from this place through our mission endeavors this summer and as others are leaving to launch out into other ministries, we are thrilled with the, with the lines that are leaving and the influence that by Your grace we can continue to have together for the Gospel. We're grateful for an outreaching church. We're grateful for a sound doctrine to which we hold and that is defended by all of the teachers of this church. As men and women labor together to proclaim the Scriptures in our, to our varying groups and ages and classes, we're thankful that through to the very end in each course, in each class, in each seminar, in the preaching and teaching of the Word formally here, week in and week out, we are thankful that there is a unity in doctrine. But Lord, like all involved faithful churches, we, like everyone, like the Philippians, are vulnerable to disunity. And I pray that we would take to heart this call and see in Christ the model and the example that we are to follow and that in the light of the gospel that all of our relationships will be changed and that you will continue to teach us to love one another and to have the same mind and to be unified knowing that this is what Christ is doing. Be magnified, we pray, in this church and in our lives. Use us for the glory of your name, and we will praise you. For those who know not Christ as Savior, I pray that they would take to heart this day of meeting before Jesus when their knee will bow and their tongue confess that he is Lord. God, grant them the joy today of proclaiming Christ as Lord with joy. Grant them the privilege of coming in repentance and turning from sin and embracing Christ crucified and risen. And bring the day when they can stand before this congregation or another of like faith and identify with Jesus in the waters of baptism and say in that way, He is Lord. Continue to do this work among us, we pray in the name of our Savior and for the glory of your name. Through him we pray. Amen.